Millionaire True Believers, welcome to the Task Force X Headcast. A proud member of the Headcast family, I am your host, Aaron Moss, otherwise known as Head. The Task Force X Headcast follows the adventures of DC Comics Task Force X. Task Force X was made up of the Suicide Squad comic, which was created by John Ostrander and Ryan Scott, which started in the late 1980s, and the sister comic, Checkmate, created by Paul Kupperberg and Steve Irwin. These were two sides of DC's espionage comics. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team, made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't... You'll be dead. Exactly. I will attempt to chronicle each title and all the books that the Suicide Squad and Checkmate appeared in during this era. We're the U.S. government. Who's going to blow the whistle on us? The convicts? Who'd believe them? You? (laughs) You're going to start a blog and expose us? Well, yeah, Amanda. A blog and a headcast. Those scumbags are trying to screw me. No, not at all, Amanda. I'm just trying to help everyone else discover the joy of the Suicide Squad. Anywho, hope you guys have as much fun with these comics as I did when I first read them. Oh, so many years ago. Punk. Alright, Amanda. Bang. We'll return after these messages. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Task Force X. Uh, this episode, we're going to review Checkmate number two and Suicide Squad number ten. Plus, we have a couple character profiles lined up. So let's go ahead and get started with Checkmate number two. It was entitled A House Divided. It was covered in May of 1988. On sale date, January the 12th of 1988. The cover price was a buck and a quarter. The editor of this was Jonathan Peterson. The writer, as usual, was Paul Kupperberg, penciler Steve Irwin, inker Al Vey, letterer Janice Cheng, and colorist Juliana Freer. Cover artist was Gil Kane. And now for my synopsis of the story. It's our second part of our White Supremacy storyline. We start with the night busting the heads of three goons that's leaving a bomb at Chicago's Art Institute. After mopping the floor of them, the team's bomb squad rolls in and disposes of the bomb. One of the pawns informs the knight that a couple of the other bombs went off. Once the bomb squad has done its job, the knight pulls a Batman on his pawn. As the news covers the recent bombings, the supremacist group wonders what happened with the Art Institute bomb. The group talks about how soon they'll be able to break off and form a union of white states as God intended. We then find Harry Stein at home, where he's surprised by his kids showing up that he'd forgotten were flying in. Bullet calls Stein and informs him of the Chicago bombings, which causes him to rush off, leaving the boys with his housekeeper. Meanwhile, in New York, we find Black Thorn beating on some punks that have been harassing senior citizens in the area before she goes home and thinks about Stern's offer, I'm sorry, thinks about Stein's offer, and spends some time remembering Adrian Chase a.k.a. the Vigilante. Meanwhile, back in Chicago, Gary, the night from last issue, is contemplating the bombings when he calls an old buddy from the bomb squad, 
After a brief discussion, he returns to the safe house and discusses his theory with Grace. We then return our attention to Northwestward, Wyoming, where Pawn is watching a compound that is moving some heavy equipment. Tanks, jets, military equipment. As he's calling in a checkmate, he's discovered, and a quick gun battle ensues. Both the pawn and one of the guards wind up dead. Back at the Chicago airport, another knight is keeping tabs on a Mr. Rizzoli as he brings in a load of chemicals. Rizzoli notices the knight and alerts his men. The fight again ensues, where the knight winds up taking out a bunch of the bad guys. As he gets on his motorcycle to try to cut Rizzoli off, one of the thugs fires at him, blowing out his tire, causing him to crash his bike into a tanker, which promptly explodes, ending our issue with a bang. Next, the State of the Union is Civil War. And now to move on to my thoughts about this issue, we start with the cover. Uh, the cover shows a knight busting through a window, kicking a bad guy, one other guy has his gun out, actually we see a couple of guns out, lots of guy on the floor, it's a pretty good cover. I mean, it's Gil Kane. Uh, most people either love or hate him. Uh, I like most of Gil Kane's stuff. I mean, he was Digital the Adam for a long time, so I have to like him. <laughs> but this is very Gil Kane artwork. Uh, if you didn't know, if I didn't tell you who this was, and you were looking at it, and, you, and you're familiar with Kane's artwork, you will recognize just by the looks on people's faces. It's, he's got a distinctive style. I don't know exactly what it is, but yeah, looking at these faces, I almost forgot when I first looked at it and I that it was Gil Kane. And I looked again, I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's Kane right there. That's classic Gil. So again, it's a decent cover. Like I say, we got the knight crashing through the window. That looks really nice. Uh, if you like Gil Kane's work, you'll enjoy this, I think. Uh, if you're not a fan of Gil Kane, uh, you may not like it so much. Again, not the best cover I've seen, but it's not bad. And now let's move on to the story itself. Again, we continue the story from last month. And I like the first page here at the very bottom. The three uh, bombers are setting the bomb. And uh, again, I'm a big comic book guy. I'm a big, somewhat a big Batman fan. So uh, I like this, that uh, the guys are trying to get out of there. And one of the guys is like... Look, I just want to split. These last minutes of operations make me nervous. And a voice from above, we see the shadow of somebody saying, I can't imagine why. The guy's like, well, someone's up there watching us. And I like the way the three guys are down here just looking up at the shadowed figure. They're surprised that someone's there. And it's a very superhero-esque look with the, the shadow of... I'm going to spoil it now because it's on the next page and I've already in my synopsis, but uh, the night... That's tracking these guys. We see a shadow over these uh, three hoods. Uh, hoodlums, hooligans, whatever y'all call them. I really like this. This Just one small framing. The whole page is nice. I mean, it's it's Steve Irwin pencils and Alve Inker. So, I mean, it's, it's great work. But I just like the way this page is. That last panel is just... His shadow is over the guys, and then we flip to the next page, and we get the knight's uh, inner monologue. I have their attention. Regulations stress that we refrain from speaking during confrontational situations. Supposedly, this is to prevent any act 
potential identification from either our voices or anything we say. Personally, I don't have time for small talk. I'm too busy trying to stay alive. And we see this night with the staff extended, jumping down the, the three hoods. Their arms up to protect themselves. Again, this is another nice page. Not quite poster nice, but it's a very nice page. Uh, like I say, we get the very bottom. We got the three guys, their arms up to protect them as the knight's jumping down at them. We get our title, a house divided. We get our credits on this page. Uh, again, I can go on all day about the artwork on this, but that's why I say. In fact, I may pull this out and post this on the uh, site because this is a very nice page. I like this. And the next next couple pages, a little more fight, fight, run, run, fight, fight stuff. And uh, I like this on page, I think it's page three, possibly four. Lost track here. Um, the Knights, you know, taking these guys out. And one of the goons he's taken out is reaching for a gun that's on the ground. And again, he uses that, that wrist-mounted blade thing he has, uh, what you would call it, uh, I guess that's a gauntlet, and shoots a little blade into the guy's hand to stop from getting the gun, then he just kicks the living crap out of him. Literally kicks him in the face and just whap. And like this is, he's, he's done fighting. He's like, the fight's lasted less than 30 seconds. Give me just over four minutes to get the D-team in here to defuse the explosives. Luckily, that isn't part of my job. And after he takes out the, the bad guys, the D-team shows up, they defuse the bomb, they let him know that, as I said in my synopsis, I think I may have misspoke. One bomb went off already, taking out the merchandise market, and that same bomb took out part of the L-track, where six people were killed. And they're still waiting here on the fourth bomb. Because there's one from last issue, this one, the one at the merchandise market, and then there's another bomb. And again, I like hit the bottom of this page here. Looks like it's page five, I believe. After the pawn tells me it's all clear and he's good to go, he <laughs> he's talking, he's busy. He's like, "Look, you better get going. If the cops happen along, we've got official ID. They'd believe, but that caution of yours would be pretty tough to explain." And gone. Jeez, that guy is good. And as I said in my synopsis, basically pulled up Batman and vanished while the guy's talking. Uh, Batman. Was Zephyrus for doing this to Gordon? Gordon be sitting there talking. He turn around, Batman be gone. He, Gordon be talking. He turn around, and Batman would be gone. And basically, that's what the knight did here. It is up and vanished. Also, on this page, I like uh, up uh, in the middle of the page, off to the right side. There's a close up of the knight, and basically they're talking about what happened last issue. That there's a uh, a renegade member of their group that blew up the Board of Trades. And his nice talking, he's got his hands uh, folded in front of him. And I believe this is one of the rare instances where you can actually see the knight's eyes beneath in his mask. Which, I don't know, just... It's, uh, it's kind of a creepy image. Because you can just see his eyes, eyes from in his mask. Everything else is black. But it's also very good. It tells how determined this guy is. Uh, I like this one little panel. I mean, I like the whole book, as I've said, but this one little panel here is especially extraordinary. And then courtesy Exposition News Network, uh, the top of the next page basically gives us a... the lowdown about what's going on about the bombings and that they're suspecting this guy named William 
aka Bill Cross. Uh, he's part of a group called the American Supremacist Party. All the stuff that we found out from last from last issue. And as I said, my synopsis, we get the guys talking about, you know, why the uh, last bomb didn't go off. And that it could be the guy that showed up last, uh, last night, they're saying, which was last issue. And that they haven't heard from their guys that they left to eliminate the night and the Fed that they'd captured O'Connor. And they're talking about, like, in this last page, or this last panel of this page here, they're talking about how... And again, it's a very cliched speech about how the government's grown too fat and secure during the last 200 years. And that he's saying, I'm going to read this last, second to the last panel here. He's like, things will be different this time. Finally, the white man who God has made superior to all others, finally we've had enough. If the government wants to continue handing the USA over to the Jews and niggers, well, we can't stop them. But we can secede from the unpure states and create a new nation within America for the white man to live as he chooses, untainted and free from the genetic pollution that will ultimately destroy the United States. Gentlemen, I give you the union of white states. Hell, hell. And again, they've got a very, uh, they're, when they're praising each other, whatever, hell, they've got a very Hitler-esque uh, salute going on. And again, this is something that's been going on for the last 200 years of our country. Uh, we got yeah we we brought these black people over, uh, these Chinese people and other people have immigrated here, and you get people these white guys that feel that America is just the land of white people and that the Mexicans who were here first and the Indians who were here first and the the black people most of who we brought over. Um, don't belong here, and it should be just for white people. Uh, in case you couldn't tell from my mumblings there, uh, we're responsible for this being a, a melting pot, as it were. Uh, so, again, I, I don't agree with their stance. I think they're very ignorant. Uh, sadly, I, I wish this was all just a comic book, but, I mean, here it is, 2016. It's like almost 30 years after this book was written. Actually, a little over 30 years after this book was written. And we still have some of the same people here. In fact, not to get political, because that's not this kind of party, but uh, a certain someone that's running for a certain government position of a certain government has made some similar comments that, you know, he wants to make white, great again, make white, picture I saw on Facebook, uh, wants to make America great again, wants to put up a wall between, you know, and again, not to get into political rants, but if you're not careful, a lot of what this guy's talking sounds a lot like what these guys are talking about uh, back in the late 80s. So again, 30 years, and sadly, as, as a people, I mean, not everyone feels this way. I, I'm hoping it's just a small majority, but we'll see come election time. But... Unfortunately, a lot of people still believe this way. And again, if you know me or if you see my picture, I am a white guy. Uh, but again, if you know me, you know that I, I believe that we're all equal. Um, again, that's not this kind of party. But over my head speaks, I used to. I'm, I'm trying to tone that down a little bit there too. But if you know me personally, you know I, I, I tend to hate everybody. 
Uh, it doesn't matter what color or race or anything you are. Uh, I think most people are stupid until proven otherwise, just because that doesn't usually steer you wrong. But to say that, and again, to move off of that, because, you know, that's, again, that's not this podcast. Uh, to say that, that God, in quotes, uh, made white man superior to all others, again, there's no real proof of that. I mean, there's all these different races, and if you follow things back, I mean, it looks like both th most things, especially, again, let's go to the Bible that these guys are referring to. Most things started out over in Egypt, Africa, uh, the Middle Eastern area. <sighs> Hate to break it to you, Chief. There's not a lot of white people over there. <sighs> Anyways. And then you got the name of their, the country they're wanting to start. The Union of White States. A very on the nose. I, I don't know if anyone actually goes far to call a country that. I mean, I know last time we tried to have people seeding off into their own country. Uh, they call it, try to call it the Confederate States of America, I believe. Uh, and I'm just guessing, I'm pretty sure this Union of White States is not going to fare much better than the Confederate States did. But, uh, again, got to watch because this could slide into a different type of podcast, which I don't want to make it go that way. So, we'll go ahead and leave these white supremacists where they're at and we'll move on with our story. Uh, then we go to the Washington, D.C. suburb of Shelby, Pence, uh, Shelby, Virginia. Where we get Stein drying his hair, going down to his kitchen where his maid is uh, cooking breakfast for him. Or his housekeeper, I guess. And again, while she's his housekeeper, she's also very concerned about him. Uh, he only got like th no more than three hours worth of sleep. And she's worried about his health if he doesn't slow down a little bit and relax. And I like this. He's all, Mrs. Grady, you're a gem. And he's thinking to himself, just like my mom. Again, it's a non-stop talking busybody. I used to sit at our Brownsville kitchen table and she'd chat away for hours. And again, as he's talking here, we get a little more about his backstory, a little more about his personality. And then we get his kids showing up. He's got two boys, uh, Barry and Matthew. And I don't know how long uh, Mrs. Grady's been with Stein, but apparently she didn't know he had boys. So I'm guessing, again, from that, I'm guessing he doesn't have very many pictures of the kids. He doesn't apparently talk to him to his uh, housekeeper at all. Uh, again, he's a very busy man. I'm sure he doesn't have a whole lot of conversations with her other than good morning and she, him, her... Uh, Acting like his mom and trying to get him, you know, get him more sleep and get take care of himself. But uh, again, I know he, his job is very hectic and very at this point is very high pace and very top secret. So I'm sure he's not talking with her about his job issues. And from the sounds of it, he's not talking with her about his family issues either. So, and again, that's not good on a person not to, you know, you need to have someone to vent to or talk with. And again, maybe we'll see. Uh, maybe talks with Bullock, the person that's calling him on the phone to let him know he's got a job to do. But, and again, we find a little more about Harry. Uh, his his uh, ex-wife, I'm assuming, you know, told the kids that, you know, they told the kids that, you know, Harry was kind of busy. 
And the last panel, I forgot the phone of Harry. He's like, that's just great. The kids aren't here five minutes. I've got to go. Just like old times, huh, Harry? Which again, let's, if you're not familiar with Harry Stein, if you haven't read him anywhere else, it gives you a little more about his backstory. It lets you know that he's always been a, uh, a company man, as it were. Uh, always worried about his job. In fact, sounds like he puts his job ahead of his family. And again, without knowing anything offhand, we could probably suppose that's why he's divorced is because his job takes precedence over his family. He worked so hard, he forgot to pick up his kids. Uh, the kids that just came in, and it's like 6.30 in the morning, he's already got to take off and leave them with the housekeeper. So, uh, again, I understand. And I, I've, I don't know if I've talked about this here recently on my podcast. I'm sure I haven't here, but... He's in a very tough position. I mean, he's got to he's got to do his job. He's got you know he's taking care of the country, even though really hardly anyone knows about it. He's got to make money to to have his house, to have his housekeeper, to have all the things he has. But in doing so, he he, you, he loses track, and there's a lot of people this way. They worry about the money or about their job. And again, don't get me wrong. I don't think with Harry it's about his job. It's about protecting people. It's about protecting the nation. It's about doing what needs to be done and doing the job right. But some people let their job, whether it's for the money or in Harry's position, position for the job itself and to protect other people or for the power or for whatever they're doing, a lot of people let their job take over their, their life and they lose all touch with their personal relationships, their family, their friends, uh, any of their hobbies they may have kind of goes to the back burner. And... It, if you're a cook, if you've cooked and you put things on the back burner, you forget about them, you get worried about everything on the front burners and things you got going on the side over here. If you don't keep it on that back burner, it can burn and can ruin your dinner. So you're probably thinking to yourself, hey, we, we about dinner for you. Hungry? I mean, it's a metaphor for life, if you will. Again, if you put your family and friends on the back burner while you take care of your job or about money, power, whatever it may be, uh, you, you can ruin that friendship and that family, and which can mess up your life. And it sounds kind of like what happened with Harry here. It sounds like from just this one page that I'm looking at, uh, Harry's pet his life, his wife and kids on the back burner. So you take care of stuff on the front burner and off to the side here is his job, if you will. And he's forgotten about the stuff on the back burner, such as forgetting his kids at the airports. And it's caused that back burner stuff to burn. His family got burnt. Uh, it caused him to sound like he got divorced. The kids are with the mom, it sounds like. Uh, so I'm, I'm saying all that to say, you know, this. That, well, yes, you do need your job. You do need money to live and to support your family. If you do have a family, uh, slow down a little bit. Take a second. Give them a hug. Uh, don't, don't let job and other things get in the way of your family. Again, I can understand how, you know, without having dad around, that would probably hurt the kids and uh, having support around would help hurt the mom a lot. And so I don't blame her on one hand for divorcing him, if that's indeed what happened. But on the other hand, I see where Harry's coming from. It's Especially with Harry's job, he's not some CEO of some big company. He's not doing this for money or power or prestige. The job he's doing, and before this he was a cop, which all in the same thing, it's he's basically a hero. He's not a superhero, he doesn't wear a cape, he doesn't wear tights, but he is a hero. He's he's 
sacrificing his own life, his own family even, and his family's happiness to protect uh, everyone else in the country. I'm sure when he was in New York, it was just a smaller scale, but it's still the same thing. He was sacrificing his family to protect the citizens of New York. And I forget how it was in the 80s, but I know, especially right now, cops get a lot of grief. And that's one thing you have to keep in mind, that when co- there are bad cops out there, don't get me wrong. And as I've said on some of my Facebook posts to people, there's bad people no matter where you go. Whether it's the clergy, police, firemen, whatever it is. You got bad people all over. But don't let those bad apples ruin everyone else. Uh, just because there are some bad people out there doesn't make all cops bad. A lot of cops are out there trying to fight the good fight. They're trying to good, do good deeds. Such as our buddy Harry here. But I guess that's enough of that soapbox. I'm going to get off for a little bit. And uh, let's go ahead and move on with the story. As soon as I said my synopsis, we get Gary at the safe house. And again, I could talk about the artwork in here. But again, why? As I've been saying, it's phenomenal artwork. Uh, they did a great job on this issue. A friend of the show, Paul Kupperberg, did some excellent writing. Some great characterizations here. And again, uh, on this page here, we have uh, Gary and, oh, I think her name was Grace, I want to say. Uh, they're talking. And Grace is asking Gary, you know, she says, you're not emotionally, not getting emotionally involved, are you, Gary? And Gary's like, Reed asked me the same thing last night. Yeah, I guess I am. It's hard not to, though. Considering I'm one of those people that the maniacs are trying to wipe off the face of the earth. As I said last issue... In the last episode, Gary is a uh, of African-American descent, if you will. He's a black guy. Considering that this entire group is devoted to take out Gary, his family, I'm sure a good part of his friends. Yeah, it's a little hard to not take this personally. I know if it was me, if someone would wipe out me and my, my kids, my wife, my friends, because uh, most of my friends are the same race I am. If someone wanted to take us out just because of the color of our skin, it'd be kind of hard not to take it personally. Uh, so Gary doing as well as he's doing and not, you know, going kind of nuts, so I, I can't really blame him. I mean, I think, I'm not can't blame him, but I think he's doing a really good job, and uh, I can't blame him if he did go nuts and took it personally, because again, that, that's kind of, it is kind of personal. Especially when you're dealing with someone's family and, you know, their livelihood. Again, for something they can't control, the color of their skin, thats it's just stupid to, to think someone's less worthy just because of the color of their skin. Again, I, and I'm sure I don't have to argue that with many people. Uh, most intelligent thinking people realize that, you know, white supremacy and this whole, and not just white supremacy, I, I don't want to get on the wrong kick here, whether it's the Black Panthers, white supremacists, uh, La Raza, any one group that thinks their race is better or flip that coin around, any one race that thinks other races are worse just because of the color of their skin, I don't want to say they're not playing with the full deck, but they're not playing with the full deck. Again, it's not the color of your skin that makes you who you are and what you are, but it's the way you act. And again, I don't want to get too far into this tangent. Again, if you want to hear a tangent about race and race relations, uh, check out some of my Head Speaks podcasts from the past. I, I've talked about this there. And I may talk about that again at some point. But just to touch briefly, you can get jerks and racists of, of any color. You get black people. 
to think, you know, that all white people are bad. You get Mexicans to think all white people are bad because of some that treated them wrong. You get white people that think other races, sometimes they devote their, their anger towards one race, towards just blacks, towards Mexicans, towards Muslims is a big thing right now. Uh, just because one small group has done wrong, and they apply it to the entire people, which is wrong. Again, no matter whether you're a white guy hating on other races, whether you're, you're a black guy hating on white people, a Mexican hating on white people, Asian, hating on whatever race you're hating on. Uh, if you're hating on an entire race of people just because one small subset's done done wrong by you or your family, or even in the past, I know a lot of black people are upset about slavery. None of them have been slaves. Their parents weren't slaves, but yet they feel, they feel and again, again, this is just a minor subset of people, but they feel all white people are wrong because of that. Uh, they are wrong and again, these white supremacists here, they are completely and utterly wrong. They, they feel that whites are superior to every other race. And uh, look at our trailer parks. Look at Tornado Alley where you got a lot of white people living amongst where tornadoes sweep through on a weekly or monthly basis. Uh, you've got, uh, look at some of our higher-ups in power. Look at, look almost anywhere. You can find white people that are not worth the air they breathe. So, again, I'm starting off on a tangent here, I think. Uh, let's go back into the story itself. The next couple pages deal with Blackthorn. Uh, she starts off by, show, you know, she's a caring person. She's protecting these elderly people that are being uh, picked on and harassed and preyed upon by these punks. And then she goes back home, and we get a little bit of a, not necessarily a flashback, but a little bit of her backstory and she goes back and refers to Vigilante, a.k.a. Adrian Chase, who I've talked about on my Head Speaks Headcast. A great series is a 50-issue run. The first part written by the marvelous Teen Titan writer Marv Wolfman. The last half of it, eh, not quite half of it, was written by uh, some guy, what's his name? Oh, yeah. Paul Coverberg, who wrote the same book here. So that's why there's a lot of references back to Vigilante. And again, to hear uh, Paul talk about Vigilante, check out my podcast from uh, last month, where I talked to Paul about Checkmate, and we do talk a little bit of Vigilante. Because again, that was a great book, and again, not to wax Paul's car too much, but he did a fantastic job in that book also. But enough about Vigilante, because, well, the Vigilante's done in this book for now. I'm sure he'll be back, though. But let's go ahead and move on with Checkmate. <clears throat> again, the next few pages... As I mentioned, my synopsis shows Gary walking around the city, thinking about the bombings, contacting an old uh, acquaintance on the bomb squad for New York. And again, I mean, the next couple pages, ain't, there's nothing really to say about it. Uh, it's phenomenal artwork, uh, a lot of inner dialogue from Gary, which shows what he's thinking and what's going on with him. The only thing I really have to say about this these next couple pages, the bottom page, I think it's page 15. Again, these pages aren't numbered, so I'm kind of guesstimating at it. Where he's talking to uh, Grace. And she's basically scolding him because he went outside the chain of command. He went and talked to his buddy at the uh, New York bomb squad. And, you know, she's telling him, well, you should give me with your thoughts. Let me know what's going on. And, like, his little dialogue, he's like, I guess I just got excited. And she's like, nonetheless, rules are rules. And his response is, maybe. 
but they're also maybe broken. Isn't that what Checkmate's all about? Because we talked about the first issue. That's Checkmate's whole thing. It's there to break the rules and get done what needs to get done. So I like that dialogue. And then uh, the next page, we go into the uh, Northwest Wyoming, where we're at the, uh, the headquarters of the White Supremacy Group. And again, more rhetoric about the we're fighting for the survival of the white race, right? The white race. And we see there's a pawn watching everything that's going on. Either we're watching them pulling some helicopters and some tanks, a lot of men. And as he tries to radio this radio, I'm having a problem with English tonight, kids. As he tries to radio this in, he's caught by a couple of the guards. And I like this this really cool scene here. I mean, he shoots one of the guards, and we see blood just... It looks like he shoots him in the head. We see blood gushing out, and his buddy, son of a... You killed him, you bastard! He just mows down this pawn, and we see his bullet-ridden, blood-covered body. Again, the guard also takes out the radio. But very nice artwork, very good. The dialogue's fantastic. Uh, what more do you expect from a, a Paul Kupperberg joint? I mean, it's... Again, I, I didn't really say about that. Just great artwork on that page. And then we go into the final segment of this book where there's the knight. I believe it's Gary. But again... Uh, yeah, we're sure it's Gary because he's talking about Grace and her computers and how he's falling upon his lead, so... Again, the only way we know is because it's the only not really seen, and it's continuing the storyline with Grace uh, and what Gary was talking to her about. So, but he's spying on the this Mr. Rizzoli as they're unloading some crates, and it looks like you can see here Rizzoli sees them, but the knight doesn't realize it. And again, I like the way that this was drawn. You see the knight hiding in the boxes, and Rizzoli's like stretching. Oh, man. I hate night work. You guys almost ready? I like to. Huh? I. At that point, you know, he sees something. And we see his point of vision. We see just a little bit of the knight in the corner uh, by the boxes. Again, great dialogue. I mean, the artwork's in this fantastic. In the last couple of pages, as uh, I think it's the Leyland say, I could be mistaken on that. A little run, run, fight, fight. And just, uh, you really need to read the second issue. You need to read the entire series, but the second issue is just where he's he's fighting against these goons. He's ducking behind barrels, kicking things over onto them, jumping on a uh, one of those little carriers at the airport that wheels around the luggage. <clears throat> Again, just great. Again, you got to read it to see it. I mean, see it to read it or whatever. And again, as, you know, he's fighting, he's trying to escape under a plane, and he says, you know, that not only can the propellers or the engines cover his approach, but unfortunately work against him also as he happens to turn around and sees a guy with a knife coming up on him, and they fight, and we see him tripping the guy and the guy falling into the blade. Again, we don't see him falling into the blade, but we see him going that direction. Next panel, we see you hear chomp, 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 
and blood supplies tonight. I like this that page. Uh, very good artwork there. And again, the last page here we see uh, a gunman shooting the bike that he's stolen. He spins out, falls into a gas tank, which explodes. Uh, again, blam! Fantastic explosion. Uh, this whole this whole book's got wonderful artwork. Again, I mean, since the knights can be replaced, we'd have other knights. In theory, he's replaceable, but since this is the main guy we started with, we haven't seen any other knights come into play yet. This is the middle of the storyline. Being a 30-year comic book reader, you know he's not dead. But again, it makes it look like he might be, because again, that whole tank explodes. It's been probably 30 years of it. 30 years or so since I've read this. I don't know how he gets out of it, but I'm excited to read the next issue to see. But yeah, Tiger gets you know, we see, pating, blam, the lettering on this. You don't talk much about the letter. The letter does a fantastic job. I mean, the letter tells you what's going on. We see his target shot out. He's peeling out. His tanker, and it just explodes. This would still be as nice without the, the lettering on it, but the letter just adds so much more to it. And that's where it ends with the tanker exploding and the guy that shot him saying, wow. But that'll do it for the second issue of Checkmate. Uh, now let's take a look at a character profile. We have two character profiles this month. The first one we're going to look at, his name is Mr. 104. His real name is John Debrani. Alias is Jub... Try that again. Alias is John Debrani. Mr. 103, Mr. 104, Atomic Man, and Atomic Master. His first appearance was in Doom Patrol, number 98, and uh, either the story entitled The Death of Doom Patrol or 60 Sinister Seconds. That's what uh, Mike's Amazing World has it listed as. I'm not sure which one's his actual first appearance, or which story he first appeared in, but that's the issue. He was created by Arnold Drake and Bruno Premian. Well, not messing up too bad. Mr. 104's powers is adaptive, death touch, density control, poisonous, and a shapeshifter. John Dubrovny was an average man who was an average achiever throughout his life. He settled down with his wife and went about his daily routine of working as a molecular engineer. However, John wasn't happy about his average life or his colleagues' perceptions of him. When all his colleagues had left for the night, John continued to work on his own side project, resurrecting the long-thought-dead science of alchemy. Dun-dun-dun! The device he created, however, worked in a different way to his expectations. When he was caught in the device's ray, he was transformed into an imagination of all the elements he wanted to manipulate. DeBrowney then found he could become one or more combinations of elements found in the periodic table. Adopting the name of known elements of his name, Mr. 103, because there was 103 elements known at this point. His activities brought him to the attention of the Doom Patrol. DeBrowney gave the Doom Patrol a difficult fight until the Chief managed to find a way to neutralize his power and capture him. Further information on Mr. DeBrowney, his powers. He, Mr. 104 has total control over almost the entire range of the periodic table of elements. He is able to physically transform himself into any one of those elements or a combination of several to create various weapons and traps. He is able to remain in that total control of his transmuted molecules. 
Now you may be asking me, Brother Head, why are we talking about Mr. 104? Well, pay attention to next month, and uh, you may hear a little bit more about this Mr. 104. But enough about him, because again, he doesn't have a lot of appearances, doesn't have a lot going on with him. Not quite a more, but pretty close. Anyways, we're going to go and take a quick uh, break and hear from some friends of the show. And then we'll be right back. And we'll hear about a little book, little book called Suicide Squad, issue number 10. Hold on, kids. We'll be back after this break. Don't touch that dial for goodness sake. Aw, yeah. Aww, yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Feels good. Feels good. Hello, greetings, and hi there. This is the Head Speaks Podcast. Hey there, true believers. Welcome to the Task Force X Headcast. G.I. Joe, the real American Headcast, is the code name for Aaron's daring, highly trained Headcast. My name is Aaron Moss, and this is the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. You have to do Hello, my name is Alexis Mox. This is my show called Alexis Beat. And all of these shows can be found on the Headcast Network. Look for it on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Also on Facebook by looking for the Headcast Networks. All of the great Headcasts that you love on one convenient feed. Look for it. The Head Cast Network. See you there. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Here we go back to the show. That's the fact, so now you know. And welcome back to our show. Uh, we're now at the Suicide Squad. Suicide, try that again. And welcome back to our show. We're at the Suicide Squad portion of our show. Today we're going to talk about issue 10 called Up Against the Wall. Cover date was February of 1988. But if you wanted to bad this bad boy off the stand, if you have access to DeLorean or Rip Hunter's Wave Rider from uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow TV show, you're going to set your coordinates to November the 3rd of 1987. Uh, that was my senior year in high school. And I was just getting into, really getting into comics. Anyways... Uh, back then, 
You could have bought this off the stand if you had 75 cents. That's right. Three quarters would have bought you this book. The editor was Robert Greenberger. The writer, as usual, was the delightful and talented Mr. John Oshinger. The penciler was the equally wonderful Luke McDonald. Inked by Robert Lewis. Lettered by Tom Klein. Colorist Juliana Frieter. The cover artist this episode, or this issue, is Jerry Bingham. And the synopsis of this issue... As Father Kramer gets settled in, a new prisoner escapes his cell in Belle Reve. Soon, this prisoner is revealed to be none other than the Batman. Batman has decided to look further into rumors on the government-run Black Ops team. Hacking into their files, Batman gets all the information on the team he needs. In the process, he faces off against the newest squad mate, Duchess, who appeared last issue, and his old sparring partner, Deadshot. He informs Deadshot that he couldn't take Batman out as he always pulls his punches when he tries to shoot him. Batman also, at this point, punches Rick Flagg and takes him out. As Batman turns to leave, Waller and the rest of the squad show up. After a little heart-to-heart, Waller informs Batman that she has his prints, and that if he goes public with the information he has on them, she'll find out who he is and go public also. Batman gives his evidence back to the wall and vows to take them out another way. As Batman leaves, Flagg tells the team that Batman is now his enemy because of them, and he's going to make them shape up, or else. Which affirms to Amanda why she has him on her team. And now for my thoughts on this issue. Let's start the cover. It's a, it's a simple cover. Got our Suicide Squad logo. And then the only thing on this, I mean, the only background imagery is a desk and a waste paper basket. Beyond that, we have, to my mind, one of the greatest covers. Strike that. One of the greatest images I have ever seen in a comic book. We see Batman and this is the old school the bluish cape, the gray uniform, the blue tights uh, the yellow symbol with the bat on his chest the the classic Batman that we all know and love from the 80s standing again so we got Batman who's what? 6'1", 6'2", thereabouts, guesstimating uh, we got this woman who's probably looking no, no more than 5'3", five, 5'5". Five, five. I'd have to check her who's who entry to see for sure, but she don't, she, she's got to be... She comes up to... Uh, the top of her head comes up to the middle of his chest where the bat is at. Uh, this black, heavy-set woman has got Batman backed into the corner. She's got his finger up to his chest, and Batman actually looks... Uh, while not afraid, he does appear to be a bit intimidated, a bit taken back. Uh, this is before the pre uh, I'm the Batman that Miller wrote, before the Bat God made his appearance in the J- JLA for Morrison. Uh, this was, again, he was awesome. He was Batman. But he was he's being intimidated on this cover by this somewhat short, older, heavy set black lady. Uh, but one I'm in love with. The wall. As I love her, the wall. I mean, she she's again an overweight woman, but she's beautiful. She's she's got her mouth on like you can tell she's yelling at him about something. Her hair's back in a in a ponytail or whatever it is. Uh, in a top knot, I guess it is. And again, you know, she she's looking like she's already taken another step forward towards him and Batman's trying to back up further into the wall. Uh, in fact, if I don't forget, I'm going to post this on the blog because this is a great cover. Uh, as I said, it's a great image. 
I, I love this this version of Amanda Waller, and she's just you know got Batman backed into the corner. And that's not every day you see an ordinary mortal, an ordinary person. I mean, this is Batman who who hangs out with Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, the Flash. The superpowered individual Batman hangs out with, teams up with, helps out on a regular basis. They go against all sorts of cosmic beings and superpowered beings. They fought on, take on Dark Side and uh, who knows who else. And this mortal woman's got him backed into a corner, backing down. And this is why I love this version of Amanda Waller that John Ostinger created. I mean, yeah, you could have this, the younger, newer, skinnier, whatever version of Amanda Waller do the same thing, but I don't know. To me, it doesn't strike the same reticence or whatever within me. It doesn't strike the same within me as, as this cover here does. And this shows why she is the wall. Because who else is going to stop the Batman? But who else is going to stop the Batman but a wall? And then we move on to the story proper. Uh, we start out this first page. It's a very quiet page. It just shows a, one large panel. Uh, Father Kramer in an empty room with a, a guard, uh, pro probably Murph, uh, standing there next to him. You can't see make any features. They're all in shadows. The uh, door is open to this empty room, which apparently is going to be Father Kramer's new room. Uh, again, it's a very plain panel or picture page, but it's very moving. Uh, we got this guy. Again, we don't know who these people are yet. At this point, all we know, we are uh, got these two guys in shadows in this empty room. And there's one with a couple bags in his hand that says, oh, yes, this will do fine. So we don't really know what's going on yet. But again, having read the book and already given the uh, synopsis on it, we know that this is Father Kramer. He's moving into the uh, Belle Reve. So... Uh, Again, I just something about this page. It's I like this the way it's lit up, the way it's it's drawn. Uh, both men are in shadows around each of their feet. There's uh, lights from some skylights in the room. We still can't make anything out. I don't know what it is. Something about this page is very nice. This first page it starts off again for something so simple. It's a very nice page. Uh, as we go along, they turn a light on, and we, that's where we find out that it used to be a storeroom. And we get Daniel Murphy, uh, part of the ground crew. And again, uh, the priest says that he prefers to be called Murph, as I mentioned a minute ago. We find out that this is indeed Father Kramer. And basically, we get a little bit of backstory on the Suicide Squad. Uh, and who these people are, just a little bit, through their sentences here. And we find out that uh, apparently uh, Father Kramer... He's talking with Murph. Murph's like, so, Padre, who'd you cheese off to get assigned here? And uh, Kramer's like, my spears. I tend to get too involved for their hands-off branded ministry. But I welcome this. But I welcome this chaplain assignment. Our Lord spent a great deal of time with sinners and criminals. I'm happy to have a better chance to follow his path. And Murph's like, you were a weird one, Padre. So again, it lets us know who Father Kramer is. And we get a little bit, of, you know, find out that apparently he bucks the system. So that's why they've got him dealing with the Suicide Squad and in Bell Rev. Because, well, where else are you going to send someone like that? 
And so as we're going along, we get a little more backstory, a little more uh, information on Murph. We find out that Murphy's doesn't care for his job, but he's good at it. And as he's given the father the tour, he gets a call that someone named the Duchess has broken into the infirmary. And uh, Father Kramer's like, who's this Duchess? I've never seen her file. And here we get a little uh, recap from last issue where Murph says that on the team, one of the members slipped not, got his arm blown off. And he tells the six foot two broad, finds him and brings him back to Bell Ref, kicking our front doors. As she does so. Since this mystery woman doesn't have a name, uh, her men, his men start calling her Duchess because she's so damn high-handed, as uh, Murph says. And also because if John Wayne never came back as a woman, he'd be her. <laughs> and again, I'm I, not a huge John Wayne fan, but I know my grandfather used to be. And I like a lot of John Wayne stuff, uh, just by the fact that I used to watch a lot with my grandfather, and you know, I love my grandfather, so... I kind of kind of emotional attached to John Wayne. So that line there always makes me smile and makes me chuckle. As far as Duchess, uh, I'm not going to say much about her right now. We saw her last episode, last issue, uh, when she was in the swamps. Uh, we'll find out more about Duchess as we go along. Uh, for those that have read this series, you probably know who she is. Those that don't, uh, settle in. And like I said, it'll be a little while before we find out who she really is, but I, I think the the wait is well worth worth it. And uh, so they find Duchess, and I like this. Uh, Murph's like, Duchess, what are you doing in here? We told you the army was off limits to you. And she's like, I wanted a gun. It's like, we gave you a gun. Huh. That pitiful thing? That's a toy. I decided to make my own. And so we scroll over for our first real good look at Duchess. Uh, she's a big Amazonian-type woman. Uh, she's got khaki pants on, big boots, and a green uh, T-shirt, wife-beater T-shirt. Her hair's in a ponytail with a bandana on, and she's got uh, the mother of all guns in her hand. I'm not a gun guy. I couldn't tell you what kind of gun it is or what it's made up of. All I know is it's a big honking gun. And if I were to go through the zombie apocalypse, I wouldn't mind having that in my hands. And then we move on with our story. Uh, the wall's giving Flo a hard time because apparently Flo has the hots for Bronze Tiger, a.k.a. Ben Turner. Uh, she's telling uh, Waller that uh, Bronze Tiger's feeling much better. He's manipulating his chi to help him recover. And Waller's like, uh-huh. Sure, you ain't manipulating his chi, girl? Oh, Miss Waller. And then they go on to talk about Rick Flagg and uh, Amanda saying that Dr. Grace's death from, again, the previous issue, uh, it's Karen Grace, uh, has chewed him up too much to be effective. And she goes on to compare her husband, who we heard about back in Secret Origins Annual, or I'm sorry, Secret Origins 14, at the beginning of my show, and also over on Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast. And she goes on to say that, you know, her husband's like Rick Flagg, all duty and noble suffering. One day something happens, they crack, and then do stupid thing. Get themselves killed, maybe others too. Besides, Flagg was never my choice anyway. Been stuck with him, has yet to show me anything to change my mind. And, again, this is issue 10. I don't want to say it's a retcon or a change, but we never really, I guess, saw the behind the scenes. 
or behind the scene, behind the scenes. Because when she opened Secret Origins number fourteen, uh, Rick was with her, and it seemed like he, you know, she, she, he was, she picked him to be a part of the team. Here, it's making it sound like that she, he was foisted upon her, foisted upon her, hoisted upon her, whichever it is. And then there's reference to Mark Shaw. Uh, Murph's like, what about this Mark Shaw character? He did well. And Waller says that she offered it to him, but he says he wanted freelance. Which, uh, in a couple months' time, at this point, uh, he will start in his own series uh, called Manhunter. And if you want to hear more about that, you can check out my Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour podcast, where I'm reviewing that series, along with the Will Payton Starman. Uh, but enough promoting my own shows. Let's get back to this one. Uh, so she goes on to say she has to head to Washington tomorrow as part of her new duties of overall head of Task Force X. Uh, and again, this leads, I believe, into checkmate number one, which I reviewed, uh, I believe it was last month. Uh, the... Or the month before that. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. Uh, anyways, this leads into Checkmate 1, where she was talking with Harry Stein, a guy in charge of Checkmate. Again, if you heard last, the last time I talked about it, uh, you're familiar with who Harry Stein is and what Amanda was doing. And Flo says that she wants to go on a mission. I guess she's been bugging Waller to go on missions. And I like this. Waller's like, Flo, if I let you do that, your mama would shoot me, and I'd give her the gun. Because, again, Flo... And, again, I think a lot of it is... That she likes Bronze Tiger, a.k.a. Ben Turner, and wants to be around him more often. She sure, the best way to do that is to go on to missions. And uh, the Waller's got it right. I mean, honestly, Flo's not made, a, made to go on missions. Uh, she's more, as she says here in this last panel, part of the ground crew. Uh, like Waller says, uh, she's like, you're not expendable like the others, okay? Whereas most of the Suicide Squad is made up criminals and scumbags, and they're ex the expendable type. Flo's actually a decent human being. She's a good person. And, you know, her death would serve nothing except for, as Waller says, you know, make her mom mad and want to shoot the wall. So, but you can tell that, again, this you can tell this is going to be a simmering subplot that's going to simmer on for a while because this look on her face here was like, yes, ma'am. Where she's saying yes, but her eyes are saying no, no. Nay, nay. Uh, but again, we'll touch upon that later on in the series, I'm sure. And then we get uh, Rick Flagg talking with Mark Shaw. Well, again, Mark Shaw's doing the talking. He's letting us know again that he's going private. Uh, bounty Hunter, the crooked costumes, calling himself Manhunter. As it says here, it was a good name once, might be again. Which again leads into my Manhunter uh, podcast. And he wants to know if Rick wants to join up with him, be partners. And apparently the Waller gave him a, a commission, wants to see if he can secure up the old Arjunet group, which I've talked about, again, in the Secret Origins podcast, and in the Secret Origins uh, issue 14, when I talk about it in my own show. And again, Rick's pretty quiet in this whole scene, he's finally like, get out. And so Mark Shaw's like, right, see you around, Colonel. Yeah, you know, like this, Mark Shaw, he's trying to, I don't want to say he's trying to cheer Rick up, but he's trying to get to Rick and trying to get him to realize that 
Karen wouldn't want him to sit around and mope like this. She'd want him to get out there and take on the next mission and do what needs to be done. But Rick's just, he, as Waller said, you know, he's basically not quite a defeated man, but something inside him broke when Karen died, so. And again, later this issue will find a little more, this will come to a, come to a conclusion, to a head. And then we go back to the uh, cell where we got this guy in prison, taking off his glasses, popping out a lens, and holding it up over the camera. And we see he holds it up to the first, holds it up to us, and we see it, it's a picture of him sleeping in his bed. And so basically, what the, this mysterious stranger at this point is doing is painting a lens over the camera. That way, the security guys think he's still in bed sleeping. And again, they say down here that, uh, in fact, at this point, if you're a Batman fan, you know who this is. Because the guards like the prisoner that they were looking at. The cell went fuzzy, came back into focus. And it says it matches one matches Malone. Transient. Bound for Gotham. Favorite police commissioner. And it reads, uh, Batman knows that matches Malone is one of Batman's aliases. And in fact, if you, if you watch Gotham, uh, that name's showing up on that show quite a bit right now. Uh, from like I said, I don't think I've seen the latest episode, but the last one I saw, everything points to maybe Matches Malone being the killer of uh, Bruce's parents on the Gotham show, which is a nice touch. But this isn't a Gotham podcast. Uh, this is the Suicide Squad. So let's get back to the Suicide Squad. Uh, so after Matches Malone disables security so they can't see him, he picks us up, uses the lockpick, breaks out of the cell. And we see him going down to the uh, storage area, storeroom A. And there's a package that says, For Commissioner James Gordon, Gotham City, his eyes only. So again, since it's for the police commissioner, it says his eyes only. It's like top secret type stuff. No one's going to look into it. So we open it up and we find it's the Batman's costume. Okay, so there's any doubt in your mind who this is. We now find out that this is the Batman. And again, the next few, the next pages. This page and the next page is quiet pages. Batman's breaking out of the cell, getting his costume, breaking into John Econos, probably mispronouncing his name, uh, the warden's office. And he starts going through the filing cabinet. Again, this is the 80s. Uh, computer and databases aren't quite what they were today, are today. So a lot of the stuff was stored hard copy on files in the file cabinet. And we cover Waller. And as they turn off the computers, Waller's getting ready to leave. I like this. So she, you know, she tells him that you know her mate. She told him when she took on as head of Task Force X, she meant to spend most of her time with the Suicide Squad. They shut down the computer and leave. We have a panel of just the computer system, and then we see the black silhouette of Batman coming up on it. And as you get ready to leave. Uh, someone tells her that uh, Mur it looks like Murph tells her that it looks like the computer's still on her office. So he asks her if she's running a program, and she realizes that someone's in there. So she rushes in there, and again, this is very much the Waller. She goes running across the compound, goes bursting in the computer lab with a gun. Uh, again, not a computer guy. It looks like an Uzi from what I can see. If any of my listeners are computer guy or computer guys, I'm the computer guy. If any of my listeners are gun guys, let me know. Is that a newsie? That's what it looks like to me. 
And she looks at what the, the person that broke in was looking at, and we find out that he pulled up the whole organizational chart, and she's like, our cover's blown. And again, I like this close-up on page 10 here at the very bottom. She's a close-up of her face. It's she, Our cover's blown. So you realize she's upset that, you know, this top-secret government organization is only 10 episodes in, or 10 issues in, and their cover's already been blown, and she doesn't know by who. So she tells uh, Murph to light up the prison like a movie set. And as they do that, uh, again, the bottom of page 11. I love the way this is drawn here. Uh, we see Batman coming at the camera. Again, you don't get a clear shot at him. It's a lot of, uh, it looks almost demonic, like a human bat. He comes rushing at the camera. And someone, we don't know who it is off panel, I'm assuming maybe Waller. It's like, damn, we're in trouble now. But yeah, they know the bat. They know when the bat gets involved, uh, crap goes downhill. Uh, so she gets on the horn, tells Flag that Batman's broken in, and they've got to nail him. She tells Lawton that you know he needs to get on it, and I like this. She's like, "You're on this too, Lawton. And don't feed me this. I don't do windows." It's like Batman, huh? So he starts putting on his gauntlets. Uh, Duchess decides to go take a look and see what's going on with it. And as Waller's trying to figure out how he got in, she's having pulled the infrared to see who's not in there, actually in their bed. Uh, we see one, two, three, four, five, six security guards surrounding Batman. Again, this is bottom page 12. There's six to one against Batman. Anyone that's familiar with Batman comics knows that these guys are outnumbered. And the next page basically shows them why he's out, they're outnumbered as Batman begins to take all six of them down. I don't know if it's just this copy I've got here. The coloring's a little off. It may be due to the, supposed to be the darkness, but uh, his... And I think it's just the coloring in the ears. But the, his arms is a, a murky color. But again, it's a great fight scene. And as he goes running away from the guards, he just knocked down. Uh, Duchess just knocks him into a cell. And again, she towers over Batman. I'll tell you how big she is. And again, see the coloring is still off here on his costume. But then on the next page, on page 14, we're back to a normal Batman-looking costume. And she tells him that, uh, she's like, what's the big deal about you? You seems overrated to me. And he jabs her in the throat, which does no effect. And she's like, better. Now you've annoyed me. And then she rushes at him. Batman pulls up from his back, shoves in her mouth, and it's a gas capsule. Which, again, that's why he's Batman. So she starts passing out from the gas capsule. He takes off. Again, a beautiful little fight scene here between Duchess and Batman. And if it wasn't for that gas capsule, again, the Duchess could have handed Batman his cape. And then we get to the bottom of the page... 15, where Batman confronts Deadshot, who, again, if you follow Deadshot or read a lot of old Batman's comics, uh, Deadshot used to be a big-time Batman villain. Well, not big-time, but he appears a few times in Batman. And the next page shows the crosshairs looking at Batman. He shoots, Batman ducks, comes up and punches Deadshot and just knocks him on the floor. Again, that's a nice, so that's a nice page there with... Uh, Bottom of page 15 and page 16 with Deadshot versus Batman. And Batman just laying Deadshot out. 
And on the page 17 and 18, and the top of 19, uh, we get a little fight-fight between Batman and Rick Flagg. And again, against Batman. Again, this is before the, the God-Batman stage. Batman's pretty much holding his own. Actually, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Rick Flagg's holding his own against Batman. Uh, Batman seems to be getting the upper hand. Knocks Rick's flag as Rick starts to get back up. Batman's leaping at him. Uh, we get, again, that Uzi I mentioned earlier firing above him. And then we look, we see, we see uh, Murph and uh, Duchess, Deadshot, the wall, and a bunch of other security guys waiting for Batman. And I like this dialogue. She's like, don't know where you're planning to go, Batman. Place is still tighter than a drum. Batman's like, should I tell you how many cell drums I've escaped from Mrs. Waller? What's your problem, Batman? My problem is Waller is your suicide squad. The government is now involved in pinning unreformed menaces back out on the street. Menaces that, menaces that I and many others, costume and otherwise, spent a lot of time and trouble pinning away. I've been hearing rumors about such a group, and while I was down here dealing with the manhunters, my curiosity was aroused. What you're doing is a travesty of justice. Do you think do you really think I'll let it continue? And, ba and ba Waller basically tells him that, you know, they're doing work necessary that's outside of normal methods, much like he does. And uh, Batman's like, people don't pay taxes to support me as they do you. Maybe you should ask them. I won't keep your secret. Are you willing to kill when you keep it? So again, Batman, again, he's basically saying the difference between him and the Suicide Squad is that the government funds the Suicide Squad, where Batman's not funded by the government's. I don't know. I, I don't know how I stand on this issue. I mean, again, I love the Suicide Squad, so of course I'm on the side of them. But uh, Batman does have a point that our government taxes are going to work to fund this group of criminals that are uh, they're not being reformed, but they are being pet back out on the street to do who knows what. After all the time that superheroes such as Batman has spent uh, capturing and petting them away, and Batman tells me, you know. He draws a line in the sand. He's like, I'm not going to keep this secret. The only way to get me to keep it is to kill me. And at this point, Batman and Deadshot have a little talk. And, and Deadshot comments how he could take Batman out. And Batman, I'm going to quote Batman's little thing here. He says, if you could have, you would have by now. Aren't you aware that you pull your shots around me? And basically, it's just, uh, I think it's Ostrander's way of explaining how Deadshot supposed to be the world's best assassin, never misses, has never been able to kill Batman yet. So uh, I like that. It's showing how Bat intelligent Batman is. He's figured out Deadshot's issues, that Deadshot's pulling the shots, and that's why Deadshot's never killed Batman. And then that's when Amanda drops her bombshell. Shabanda comes up. She's like, I won't say our secret identity isn't important, Batman. Just as important as yours is to you. We know how you got in here. We know what alias you used and who helped you. We didn't wear gloves in that cell, Batman. We got a nice set of prints. I promise you that if you blow this whistle on us, I'll find out who you are and do the same to you. Give me the disc, and you were not to say a word of this to anyone, and it all gets wiped. And uh, Duchess doesn't know Batman. She's like, and you expect him to keep such a vow? And Amanda knows Batman, so she's just, her answer is simple. He's Batman. So after he hands over the tape, he vows he's going to find another way to bring him down. So my my question or my comment, my, my thought here is, 
when she says she's got a nice set of prints, I don't know if she had time to actually stop and look for the prints. I know she had others doing it, but I wonder if she was bluffing or if they did get a nice set of prints off of Batman when he was masquerading his matches Malone. Again, I'm sure a lot of that is true. I mean, they, 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 she was having him do the heat sinks he was in their cell, so they know Matches was gone. Uh, he was there from Commissioner Gordon, Gotham City, so it's pretty easy to figure a lot of that out. Uh, and I'm sure he did leave some prints. I just thought that went through my mind. I wonder if, how much of this is a bluff and how much of this is really uh, a man to tell the truth. Upon further reflection, I guess she probably is telling most of the truth here, because... Again, it all makes sense. And again, I could see Amanda doing that. She doesn't want to hurt a superhero. But if it comes down to it, to protect her organization, her squad, as it were, she'll do what she needs to do. And again, the last here, this last page is pretty cool. Deadshot's incredible. We just made the high and mighty Batman back down. And that's just too much for... Uh, Rick. Rick Flagg's just like, you like Al Lawton? Well, let me tell you something. Batman is worth any ten of creeps like you or Boomerang. He's a man I've been proud to serve with, instead of the two-bit jerks like you I get stuck with. Now that man's my enemy, just to protect scum like you. Well, you and others are going to shape up Lawton, or by God, I'll know the reason why. And Amanda finishes it off by saying that, you know, before she was voicing concerns that she doesn't know if he's going to be the right leader, not his, not her choice. And here, uh, her final line here is, uh, she's telling John Ekmos, Econos, to put uh, Rick Flagg back on as mission leader. She says, he finally showed me something. So Amanda sees that, you know, Rick Flagg, he has a moral compass. He's, he's doing this job with these unsavory people, but she sees there's a true hero, if you will, deep in his heart. So, and that ends this issue. Uh, next, Blood and Snow is the title of this, or the next issue blurb down here. So, again, another great issue. Um, as always, I, I love this book. And this issue is, this issue 10 is one of my favorites, I think. Uh, now that I've reread it. Thinking about it, I think issue 10 is my favorite, especially out of the ones we read so far out of the first 10, plus the Suicide Squad uh, origin story over in Secret Origins. This is my favorite book so far, or favorite issue of this book. So, but that's enough about the Suicide Squad. We're going to go ahead and do another character profile. And this time around, we're going to talk about a character called the Bronze Tiger. His first appearance was in a novel called Dragon's Fist back in 1974, and his first comic book appearance was in Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter No. 1 in April-May of 75. Uh, he was created by Dennis O'Neill and Jim Berry, I'm sorry, Jim Berry as the writers, and Leo Garano as the artist. His alter ego is Benjamin, a.k.a. Ben Turner, team affiliations, the Suicide Squad, League of Assassins, and G-O-O-D, partnerships with, with Richard Dragon, abilities, Master of Martial Arts. And then for his uh, biography, his backstory, 
Ben basically comes from an upper middle class black neighborhood in Central City. When he was 10 years old, he saw a burglar attack King's parents, and he proceeded to kill the man with a kitchen knife. To control the rage inside him, Turner turned to martial arts and eventually crime. After some time, Turner decides to travel to the Far East in order to finally come to terms with his demons. There he meets the O-sensei and studies under him together with later recruit Richard Dragon. The meeting between Turner and Dragon serves as the start of the series Richard Dragon Kung Fu Fighter. Sometime after, they are approached by Barry Ling from the organization known as GOOD, Global Organization of Organized Defense, and their reluctant working for Ling served as a basis for the Kung Fu Fighter series. Uh, in DC Comics Presents 39, back in 1981, we see Richard Dragon discovering that Turner has been brainwashed into becoming the Bronze Tiger by a guy called Professor Ojo, and then used by Barry Ling, who turns out to be a traitor. Dragon and Turner prove equals in the fight, which only ends when Ling is accidentally knocked out a window. And then later on in... Uh, it looks like around Suicide number Suicide Squad number 38, we get a little more of Ben's background. Um, so I say he joins the Suicide Squad. Uh, <clears throat> how much of this to give out right now, because again, this is going to come up later on during the series. I don't want to do any much spoilers. Uh, let's go ahead and just touch on this briefly. Bronze Tiger is eventually set to murder Kathy Kane, the superhero in Batwoman, the friend of Batman's. While fighting Batman and defeating him, another assassin kills Kane. After the crisis on Infinite Earths, it was initially determined that Kathy Kane has never been Batwoman and had been merely a friend of Batman's. Another character named Kate Kane became Batwoman in 2006 and seemed to be a completely different character. Moving along, we learn the learning of Bronze Tiger's true identity. King Faraday sets up a rescue squad of Rick's Flag and Nightshade. They retrieve the tiger and was deprogrammed by Amanda Waller, who would later run the Suicide Squad. And which brings us to more or less modern day, in our stories anyways. Waller recruits Turner for the Suicide Squad, setting him up to become the team's leader. But he ends up becoming the second command under Rick Flag. On their first mission, which we talked about several months ago, the tiger faces Rayvon, whom he brutally cripples but refuses to kill. Turner develops a relationship with Vixen, uh, which we'll see coming up soon. And there's some other spoiler, spoiler, spoiler stuff. So we're going to go and stop there with his biography. Other versions. He was in The Batman Adventures. And over on television... He appears in Batman and the Brave and the Bold episode titled Return of the Fearsome Fangs, voiced by Gary Anthony Sturgis. He was at a non-speaking cameo in part two of the two-part episode, The Siege of Starrow. Uh, Michael J. White portrays ben, ben Turner in the Arrow episode called Identity. And then also later on the episode entitled Suicide Squad. In video games... Bronze Tiger appears in Batman Origins Blackgate with Anthony, I'm sorry, Gary Anthony Sturgis reprising his role. In the post-credits, Amanda Waller and Rick Flagg have Bronze Tiger and Deadshot in their helicopter, planning to have them in the Suicide Squad. 
Tiger also appears as a playable character in Lego Batman 3 Beyond Gotham, voiced by Amadi. As far as toys, Bronze Tiger was part of Wave 18 of the DC Universe Classics in 2011, including both his human and Tiger mask head. Uh, yes, when he was first started out as the Bronze Tiger, uh, he wore a, a giant tiger head to make him look more like a tiger. But that's the character profile on Bronze Tiger this month. Let's go over to Suicide Notes. Not much going on right there. No one's wrote in, but we do have uh, one little note I want to give out. An online buddy of mine runs a wonderful site called DC in the 80s. It's over at dcinthe80s.blogspot.ca. Uh, he transcribed part of my conversation that I had with Paul Kupperberg, uh, mainly where I talked about the vigilante. He's also going to talk, I think he's also going to transcribe later on the rest of the conversation about Suicide Squad. And that can be found over in DC in the 80s.blogspot.ca. And the actual link to the Kupperberg interview is slash 2016 slash 03 slash Paul dash Kupperberg dash tells dash us dash y dash 1983.html. And I'll throw a link of that in my in the show notes also on the on the website. And over on Facebook, we had a couple of likes and mentions. Uh, there was Ruth Sutherland, Nick Green, uh, my online buddy M. Anthony Gerardo, and a podcasting buddy Gene Hendricks. And that's it for suicide notes. Again, not much going on there. Not a lot of people writing in. Uh, go ahead and write in and let me know what you think. Do you enjoy this episode? Did you enjoy these issues? Uh, what do you guys like? What don't you like? Let me know. I enjoy hearing from you guys. Go ahead and send that in. And you can send that to taskforcex at headspeaks.com. But I guess that's it for now. Until next time, squad mates dismissed. to another great episode of Task Force X. I can also be found rambling on my main headcast of Head Speaks, where I rant and rave about movies, comics, geek stuff, and whatever is bugging me. Mate, you just out crazy the Joker. <laughs> well, I tried Boomer, but anyways, my home on the internet is at headspeaks.com. H-E-A-D-S-P-E-A-K-S dot C-O-M. Links to my blog, which contain follow-up information to this and every headcast can be found there. Both Task Force X and Headspeaks are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at headspeaks.com under headcasts. Please feel free to email me any questions, comments, or concerns to taskforcex at headspeaks.com. And if you want to record a message, you can send it to me at taskforcex at headspeaks.com, and I'll play it on the air. I'm also on Facebook at taskforcex, and also on Google+, Plus, you can look for taskforcex under people and pages. Uh, all titles and characters discussed are owned and copyrighted by DC Comics. 
I claim no ownership to the Suicide Squad, Checkmate, or Task Force X. I'm just a big fan wanting to spread the Task Force X love with everyone else. Uh, DC Comics can be found on the web at dccomics.com. Be sure to visit your local comic shop and look for Suicide Squad and Checkmate Comics. And while you're there, see what else they have that may interest you. Mother... <laughs> well, make sure you join us here next time for another fun-filled headcast from your friendly neighborhood, Brotherhead. In the meantime, I'll see you in the funny pages. Hi, friends. It's your old pal, Adam Worth. You may remember me from podcasts like Comic Book Fight Club, the Quantum Cast, and the thousands of other shows I somehow get roped into making guest appearances on. The podcasting world has been very good to me, and I feel it's about time that I give back. So coming this spring, I'll be helping to make the world a better place with my new show, The Bad Advice Show. Join me and a few <clears throat> choice panelists as we answer your questions on life, love, relationships, history, life hacks, and politics. Really, whatever topics you feel you would like to get my valued opinion on. So hop on the advice train as we make the world a better place coming this spring to an internet streaming device near you. To have your questions answered on The Bad Advice Show, send us an email at thebadadviceshow at yahoo.com. That's the bad advice show at yahoo.com and remember kids if you want to remain anonymous don't tell me your name <laughs>